The Nation State of Play podcast is produced by IBC Media in San Diego, California. Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Okay, so our guest today is one of, I think, the most interesting people in politics, Mike Madrid, uh, lifelong Republican, former executive director of the California Republican Party, and then one of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project, and really became sort of nationally known for his work in the pro-Biden uh, Lincoln Project working against Trump, even though he's a Republican. And he's one of the most knowledgeable people in the country on Latino turnout issues, but also just generally what's going on with the electorate. and. I think you'll find this episode interesting. We start talking about why California is different maybe than the rest of the country in terms of what's happening with Latino vote. But then we get into a bunch of policy discussions about what's happening in California with middle-class voters and college-educated voters. And then we, we sort of conclude with a national topic of what's happening in the midterms of the congressional elections. So we cover a lot of ground here. Episode's about an hour. But I hope you'll stick with it because um, Mike's just got a ton of interesting insights and there's probably a million different rabbit holes we could explore more on this. But I think you'll find it a good primer on sort of a data-driven view of everything that's going on with politics these days. Mike Madrid, stay with us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Cannabis Enlightened. My name is Leroy Brady. I'm a PhD, a business professor. Students want to know more about cannabis. What's cannabis about? How it's grown? What are the properties of cannabis? Is it safe? Yes, there is a business. There is a pathway through cannabis to really be successful. I've had academic people on the show who teach different phases of cannabis. And most recently, I've had scientists on CannabisEnlightened.com. American democracy is good, but we can make it better. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers includes organizations across the country who are working right now to build a better democracy by opening primaries, implementing safe, secure voting systems, reducing corruption, and increasing transparency. Listen to our weekly podcast, How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, to hear updates from the latest movements in the democracy reform space. Subscribe and learn more about us at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back to the Nation State of Play podcast. Well, Mike, thanks so much for being on the show today. Uh, I, I've always thought you're one of the most interesting people in politics, so it is a pleasure to have you here. Brian, it's always great to talk to you. I would love our conversation, so I'm, uh, I'm honored to, to be asked. Right. Okay. So uh, I want to talk about a few things, but I want to start with what's going on with the Latino vote. You're, you're obviously one of the foremost experts in this in the country, and you and Chuck Rocha started a new podcast focused on this. We had Chuck on the show just a few weeks ago, um, but you guys come from different sides of the aisle and, and have different yeah. perspectives and certain different specialties within this. So yeah, I'd love to hear what you're thinking about for the show, and then I want to ask you some specifics on kind of what we're seeing so far this cycle. Yeah, so the Latino Vote uh, podcast was actually started again by, by Chuck and I and a gentleman by the name of Jason Bialba, who heads up the Texas Hispanic Policy Foundation. Um, you know, Chuck and I got to know each other when I was working on the Lincoln Project. He had just come off the Bernie Sanders campaign. I was seeing a lot of things um, in running against Donald Trump that were concerning me about the Biden campaign, both tactically and from a message standpoint. And I desperately needed to talk to a Democrat who would know, um, and I couldn't talk to the Biden campaign, obviously, because we were an independent effort trying to affect the outcome. And my big concern at that time was, you know, my, my job was to work with the other founders of the Lincoln Project to move enough college-educated Republicans to the Biden column. Um, and, but that was only half of the equation. The other half was they needed to get the turnout they needed with, with Latino voters in order to make Biden successful. And I was very confident we were going to be able to, to, to move the Republicans that we needed to move. I, all of my modeling showed we were going to get there. I was less confident in what I was seeing with the Latino vote. And so I, I just called Chuck. Chuck and I have worked against each other for years. Um, and it was just kind of a, a, a great moment where two kind of old war horses who have done this for a very long time um, kind of, you know, there's respect for the game, right? You respect the players in the game and, and so I just called him and said, hey, hey, um, 
are you seeing what I'm seeing? And he said, yeah. And I said, are you worried the way I'm worried? And he said, yeah. And so we just kind of struck up this friendship, um, a professional friendship, which became a more of a personal friendship and realized we're at a point in our careers where we can say, you know, kind of to hell with it to both of our parties is we care about the community. We care about our Latino community. He's, he's obviously a very progressive Democrat. I'm a Republican. And, I, you know, we come from different, different sides of the aisle, but we recognize that both of our parties, um, as much as they get some things right, they really get things really, really wrong. And we're both in a position to talk about those as professional political operatives and really look under the hood and show people specifically what the problems are, because I will tell you, the Republicans do not know what they are doing. They have shown very little interest in my 30 years in Republican politics, and I've talked to almost all of them, especially the consultants here in the state. There's just no real interest in it. Um, they'll, they'll get some you know, flash of some polling results somewhere, and they'll you know, kind of translate an ad into Spanish and put up a show by and pretend they're doing something, but, but they're not. And the Democrats aren't much different. And our approaches, Chuck's approach and my approach are very, very different to campaigns. He's much more of a tactical organizer. Um, I'm much more of a message data numbers guy. Um, but both are required to have the successful um, impacts that we've both had in races. And we admire each other. We like each other. We get along personally. We disagree a lot on things. And I think that comes across in the podcast. We'll be talking about California a lot because it's the home of most Latinos in, in the country. And it, the Latino vote is going to have a significant impact on the outcome of, of races and um, in many ways um, can be a precursor of what's likely to have um, a, a, a preview of coming attractions, if you will, of what's coming for Latinos nationwide. But I'm actually doing a lot of work and research showing that California is actually an anomaly as it comes to the Latino vote. And, and I've written about that in the SACB and other papers and editorials. So there's a lot to cover. I think I've probably gone on and on here, Brian, on, on this oh, that's, intro that's question. So much, so much to unpack there. I, no, I, I almost don't know where to, where to start. <laughs> uh, I like your description of the show, though. I, Chuck referred to us at one point as a Crossfire style, which I told him was dating all of us, if people remember <laughs> Crossfire. I think it was canceled right. about 20 years ago. Right. Uh, but 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 that uh, for those of you of a mid-40s age range, hopefully you can remember the CNN show. And um, it's, it's definitely something I'm looking forward to catching up with. So, all right. So um, let's start with why California is the anomaly. Maybe why don't we take a little reverse out of out of order? This is a really provocative topic, and I have seen you write about it. What what's different about California than other states so far on the Latino vote? So let me. This is. I mean, you got a lot of a lot of Sacramento, California listeners here too. So they're, they're probably a little bit better steeped in some of these things than maybe your your national audience. But I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and and give everybody a little bit of insight into some of the things that we talk about. Um, you know, I've been looking, I've been an observer and a practitioner of California Latino voters for the past 30 years. And a lot of the, the conventional wisdom was that, you know, the more the Latino vote grows nationally, the more California like the country is going to become. And that was kind of the, the predicate for a lot of Democrats thinking Texas is going to turn blue um, and or, you know, other states surrounding states are going to turn blue. And th there's been some truth to that. That, that is part of the reason why Nevada has gone bad New Mexico, New Mexico, for sure, Arizona, for sure, Colorado, for sure. Um, but there was also this pesky demographic, which I think is actually still more pivotal that at this moment in time, which is just the, the college educated Republican voter is is has had it with the Republican Party. But let's set that aside for a second. If you look at the, at the, the numbers and the way California Latino voters have been behaving, it's been extraordinarily consistent since the mid-1990s. If you look at Dan Lundgren, for example, who was running for governor in 1998 against Gray Davis, Dan Lundgren lost by a vote of about 60-40, give or take two or three points. This is 1998. This is when I was the political director of the California Republican Party. Okay, This is a long time ago. This is 25, 26 years ago when I was first launching some of the first major initiatives for the Republican Party with Latino voters. And then if you look at this most recent election that we had, with uh, uh, the, the recall of Gavin Newsom and Larry Elder is the nominee, Gavin Newsom wins the recall by a number of 60-40. And if you look at Gavin Newsom's uh, first election, first elected governor against John Cox, it's 60-40. And if you look at 
Jerry Brown versus Meg Whitman, it was 60-40. If it's Jerry Brown versus Neil Kashkari, it's 60-40. There's very little movement in the Republican base specifically, but also very little movement in the Democratic and independent base. California is becoming extremely calcified in the way they vote, the voters actually show up. Okay, it's, it's, that's important. And again, a long setup. It's what Chuck Rocha calls the Mike Madrid setup. There's always this long explanation. <laughs> the before scenic I get to route. Point. Yeah, 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 but I, but I do get there. I take the scenic <clears throat> route, but I do get there. And so what was really important to me was looking at, um, if, for those that were, were following the recall in California, um, there were these polls uh, about three or four months before the election showing Latino voters are the most likely to support Gavin Newsom's recall. And then you have the traditional cast right. of Republicans. We, we heard a lot about that. It was a lot about that, right? Yeah. Then the, the, the Republican consultants are like, oh, here it is. We found the Holy Grail. We've been looking for for 30 years. And that was when I started saying, no, that, that's not what's going to happen here. The Latino vote will come out exactly the way it has voted in the past 30 years. And lo and behold, I hate to say I was right. Actually, I like to say I was right, Brian. I was right, dead on to the to the basically the number. Latino voters showed up and did exactly what they have always been doing for the past 30 years. A couple of months later now, in Virginia, uh, with Glenn Youngkin's race for governor, and in New Jersey, uh, and a couple of other states, New York, Pennsylvania, even the state of Washington and um, in Texas, we are witnessing a noticeable shift to the right. Latinos are moving towards the Republican Party. And that, that was when the light went on. I was like, a lot of what we are seeing nationally, this natural movement towards the right with Hispanic voters is being overshadowed by what the, the, the conventional wisdom has been dictating in California. And this is very significant. This is not a small number of, of what is happening. Um, it, it doesn't look as big as it is because there are so many Hispanics in California and every national sample rightfully has to wait towards California. But the shift outside of California is even bigger than what we're than it appears. Yeah. yeah. And can, can I spend a couple seconds explaining why that is? Yeah, no, please do. So if you look at it, if you take 2012, which is really the, the presidential election. Between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, Barack Obama gets 75 percent of the Hispanic vote nationally. He also gets 75 percent of the Hispanic vote in California. Very big numbers. Four years later, Hillary Clinton gets about 67 percent of the national Hispanic vote. Pretty significant slip. But but she gets 75 percent of the Hispanic vote in California, the same number that Barack Obama got, but she does nine points worse nationally. Four years after that, Joe Biden gets 59% of the Hispanic vote nationally, but he gets 75% of the Hispanic vote in California, exact same numbers. So if you look at it mathematically, what that means is the shift right is really a collapse of the Hispanic vote outside of California and I would argue Arizona, Arizona and California are staying almost entirely intact with a partisan Democratic vote of about 75 percent. But everywhere else, we are seeing a very significant shift away from the Democratic Party. And it's so big um, that it is, again, overshadowed simply by the size of California in terms of a national sampling. About you know, half of his. Hispanics live in California. So if you set half of those voters that voted 75% and try to figure out where the other 59% for Joe Biden came from outside of California, you realize he may have, you know, be at parity 50-50 or even worse in a that's lot amazing. of states. And that's yeah, that's, that's what's happening. And, and nobody nationally has really recognized that yet because nobody's approached it or looked at it that way. But that's what's that I think is going to be defining the future of of races. Uh, who controls Congress, who the next president of the United States will be, and who's going to be in power for probably the next 10 or 15 years as we work through this demographic transformation. All right, well, this, is, this is fascinating. So, so the obvious next two questions, it's very easy to, to be an interviewer with you. So the, the obvious next question is why? What, why the difference between national and California? Great question. So California and Arizona are the only two states that are showing this consistent position. And again, had there not been a recall um, I probably would not have picked up on this as quickly, but because Gavin Newsom's numbers came out so entirely predictably, even in a recall, 
and then for, to have uh, um, the, the contrast in Virginia just a couple of months later, never would have noticed it. But then what we saw in again 2020 is everybody was saying, hey, Trump got this bump. Right. And, and if you look at all of the states where he got this Hispanic bump, it happened everywhere except for California and Arizona. The two things that those states have in common, California and Arizona, first is it's overwhelmingly a Mexican-American vote, okay, which explains a lot of it, not all of it, because Texas went right, and that's overwhelmingly a Mexican-American vote. But Arizona and California have also undergone two decades, two decades of consistent anti-immigrant rhetoric coming from the Republican Party. The Republican Party basically created a voting block where none existed before. Uh, without certainly the case in California. If you look at early data from the early to mid 1990s, Pete Wilson was getting in the mid high 30s with Latino voters when he was running for Senate, when he was running for governor the first time, Prop 187 polled in the mid uh, low 30s uh, in the final analysis. Um, Republicans and Republican causes were traditionally getting this, this 30% bump, which is now where Republicans appear to be setting a new foundation stone nationally. So the, 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 the acculturation or assimilation of Latinos into the overall electoral mainstream was something that you know, I've been talking about for 30 years. It was, it was um, stilted um, f- during this 20-year episodes of having the Pete Wilson era, the Prop 187 era, the 209 era, the 227 era, um, from 1994 to 2013, you had Republican legislators every year introducing some sort of new anti-immigrant legislation. That all stops. Again, 2013 is an important year when Assemblyman Alejo introduces the driver's license bill for the undocumented, and he gets, for the first time, four, five, six, seven Republicans co-authoring the bill with him. The Republicans basically saying, okay, uncle, we're not going to be anti-immigrant anymore. We're actually going to throw in with Republican, with the Democrats, and take a different tack here, and you have not seen any anti-immigrant legislation coming from the Republican caucus in California since that time. In Arizona, what you had was Joe Arpaio as the the nation's sheriff. You had Governor Jan Brewer uh, openly antagonistic with uh, Barack Obama on the border wall situation. You had SB 117, I think it was, which was the, the racial profiling bill, which was essentially going to allow police officers to pull over uh, people that that looked like illegal immigrants, whatever that means. Well, we know what that means. Um, and, and, the, 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 and, and again, this was, this was, was a, a continuing episodic um, event. It was not isolated to one example, for example, the Trump presidency, because the next question is, well, how does Trump not fit into that that overall. was going to be my next question, actually. Yeah. So thanks. Yeah. yeah, just just assume that was the question. Let's say you're yeah. there. Yeah. So so Trump Trump marks the beginning, and not unlike the way Pete Wilson, you know, did quite well in 1992 and 1994 with uh, Hispanic voters. The real drop off didn't start happening until 1996, and then 1998 was when the collapse came for the Republicans in California. Um, I predict the same type of activity is going to happen nationally um, unless, unless Republicans kind of figure out a, a different approach. And so l- let me let me talk about that different approach, because when I was when I was younger than, than and, and before you go on, that, let me let me just make sure I'm hearing what you're saying, which is basically you may get a short term bump out of the anti immigrant rhetoric that that may work for a little while because you're picking up some votes on the right when you're doing it and you haven't really sort of um, uh, poisoned your well completely yet with the younger generation of Latinos. But once they hear that for a while, it catches up with you. The numbers simply add up in terms of more and more people hearing that becoming voters. And in the long run, you're killing yourself. Is that is that a fair summary? That's exactly right. And that seems to be the trajectory. So, so Texas, for example, which, you know, and again, in the long arc of Texas history, it has a very ugly history of oppression, discrimination against Very. Latinos, Hispanics. Um, having said that, uh, when I was working for George W. Bush on, you know, some independent efforts on his campaign, he was the best Republican candidate to reach out to the Hispanic community that I've ever worked with. It was why we were getting, 
you know, 40%, 45% of the Hispanic vote on the reelect is there was just a seamlessness, a natural affinity that a Texas governor had. Rick Perry, people don't re- remember, but Rick Perry's actually his second attempt at running for president blew up because he was on stage at a Republican debate, presidential debate, and said, if you want to throw out undocumented kids from public schools because they're here illegally, then you don't have a heart. And he was booed off stage. And that, that ended his that ended his campaign by not being anti-immigrant enough. Rick Perry uh, lost his campaign. So there were Texas Republican governors were very different up until Greg Abbott and even Ted Cruz. So the anti-immigrant rhetoric in Texas that is, you know, we, we, we were accustomed to in California in the 90s is a relatively new phenomenon, even in Texas. That's interesting. They hadn't really thought about that. And, and so the politicization of the Mexican-American community in Arizona and in California, where the heated anti-immigrant rhetoric has been going on for decades, has really is a relatively new phenomenon in Texas and everywhere else. So the, the question is going to become, will we go down this California trajectory or will Hispanics just simply kind of skip over that and not be concerned about it and continue to assimilate and move towards the Republican Party and start to mirror the overall electorate? The short answer is we don't we don't know. We don't know. But but history is oftentimes a good guide. And if it is a guide, it's probably not the best strategy for Republicans in the medium and long term. It's probably already not having some of its or, or it's already lost some of its short term effects. Um, and we're just going to have to see how this plays out. It's, it's why I'm spending so much time outside of California now and nationally is everything I've been working on for 30 years is now happening around the country. And these types of questions are now popping up in primaries like Ohio or Nevada, Colorado, um, Alabama, you know, some really racist, ugly campaigns are running against immigrants in the Republican primary in Alabama. So, um, so I hope that answers the question. Maybe no, it, it does. And, and there's a ton of stuff I'm going to follow up with you on this. So, so as, as, a, as a Democrat, I, I guess I could hear that two ways. I could say, okay, well, the Republicans are sowing the seeds of their own demise like they did in Arizona and California. Um, so maybe it's just like the old rule of when, you know, when your opponent's killing themselves, you just shut up. But that right. doesn't sound like your advice. You think the Democrats need to be doing something differently nationally, right? Yeah, because the Democrats are doing some they're doing two things really. Well, they're doing a few things that are really wrong here. And again, this is why the 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 podcast with Chuck and the Latino Vote podcast is so, I think, insightful is because you can hear a Democratic strategist and a Republican strategist talking about this. And and when I see what they're doing on the other side of the field um, and again, I, I've worked I was look, I was with the Lincoln Project. I worked at the highest levels of campaigns with some of the smartest, best people the Democrats had. And I knew that they were missing this. There's a huge opening that they don't even get or relate to. The biggest problem, Brian, is this. OK, and, and, and again, you could do a whole episode on this. We don't want to take up too much time. But the thing to remember is that the Democratic Party is very rapidly consolidating its voter base amongst college educated uh, voters. Uh, it is the largest demarcation in politics in the country right now is education levels. And the Republican Party is consolidated as rapidly or even faster non-college educated voters. So if you've got a college degree, there's a very, very good likelihood that you are a, a Democrat. And if you're not college educated, very high likelihood that you are a Republican. And that is happening faster and faster all over the country. The challenge for Democrats is they are not a working class party anymore, and they still think that they are. Let me say that again, because it's really important to understand. The Democrats are not the party of the working class. Now, that's not Mike Madrid saying that. That's working class voters saying that. If you poll, it's very clear. A Republican pollster, Democratic pollster will look at and ask this question of people without college degrees, overwhelmingly working class, and they say by wide margins that the Republican Party is the party that best reflects their views and values. So as Latinos, which the, the, the significant majority of Latinos graduating from high school are not going to college, we are the community that is the fastest non-college educated voting group every, you know, every 30 seconds a Latino turns 18 years old in this country and is registering to vote. Most of them, over 70% of them, are not college graduates or going to attend college. 
they are back feeling and becoming the new non-college educated blue collar worker. I call them the new Reagan Democrat. The only reason Republicans don't appeal to them as Reagan Democrats, frankly, is because they're brown, because we're Latino. Otherwise, this is literally the exact same demographic that Ronald Reagan realigned in the 1980s. So we shouldn't be surprised when we're watching it realign in real time now. It's happening marginally every election cycle, not unlike the way the Republicans realigned the South with the Southern strategy with Reagan Democrats, same demographic from the late 1970s until 1994. 1994 didn't happen in a vacuum. Again, dating ourselves here. But between the the mid-70s and the mid-90s, you could see a small, measurable movement of Dixiecrats, Southern Democrats, working-class Reagan Democrats moving towards the Republican Party, even though they remained affiliated with the Democrats until in 1994, you had a massive shift, a massive realignment. The Republican Revolution happens, and the Republicans take control for the first time in 40 years. I would argue that what we're watching today with Hispanic voters is almost exactly the same thing. It's a demographic shift. It's not a political shift. And it's not a function of the Republicans doing anything right or anything wrong. It's simply a reflection of the acculturation of the largest, fastest growing segment of the electorate. That's terrifying. Um, if, you're, <laughs> if, 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 but if you're a Democrat, and, and, and all that's inarguable in, in, in terms of what is going on with these numbers and shifts. It's certainly the idea that we're losing non-college educated voters. Um, what, what can we do to win them back? Because again, this is, a, this is a perennial debate within our party. You know, are we gonna be a party of unions or you know, are, are we gonna be a party of you know, a broader economy? And uh, you know, there, there's some real policy issues that underlie this. This isn't, this isn't pure politics, right? I mean, what, what would you say to the Biden White House if you were telling them what to do about that terrifying shift that this is happening? Well, let me, let me point out one more thing before I segue into that. Okay, so, so one natural follow-up question is, Mike, if you're right, why isn't that happening in California? Why aren't all these Latinos moving towards the Republican Party? And the answer is because in California, we're also destroying the middle class. We are destroying the blue collar working job that allows you to live uh, a sustainable way of life. We're, we're, we're attacking jobs in the energy industry. We're attacking jobs in the manufacturing industry. We're attacking jobs in the construction industry. And so these blue collar workers in these fields that allow us, that allow a worker without a college degree to make 80, 100, $150,000 a year and support a family um, are, are not, they're, they're, they're under attack. And they, the, the, those workers view, rightfully so, I would argue, the Democrats as the party that are anti those industries. So in California, it's a perfect example. What you have is that California works if you're white, college educated, progressive, and live in a, in a county that touches the, the Pacific Ocean. If you meet those three criteria, life is pretty damn good. It's why you live in California. It's why you're willing to pay a premium to live here. But if you're not any of those criteria, or if you're not even two or one of those criteria, life gets incrementally harder. So if I'm Latino and I'm non-college educated, my job prospects outside of the industries that are attacked by Democrats are de minimis. And it's why poverty is growing so rapidly in California is, yes, we are creating jobs. The Democrats are always saying we're, we're creating all of these jobs, but the jobs we're creating are overwhelmingly service economy jobs for non-college educated people. We're literally creating a cast, an economic cast of serfs for people to serve the high tech workers, which are overwhelmingly white or of Indian descent or, or, or Asian descent, Asian, Indian and, uh, and white descent. Right. That's the, the, the separation. And there's a whole economy of black and brown people built as basically a servant class for those that are accumulating more and more wealth. That's California in a nutshell. OK. And as a result, if you have a state of very high, wealthy, progressive people of one um, racial and ethnic group and another of poor, less educated, less economically mobile of another uh, race and ethnic group. One, it's a recipe for complete disaster, but two, it's also a recipe of, of hollowing out the middle class where there is not a voice for the types of policies that we're talking about. And this becomes a conundrum because across Cal outside of California, 
where this is a very different problem, what you have is a lot more uh, states that are more amenable to energy production. Texas, for example, construction. Again, Texas, for example, manufacturing, most red states. These are states that have a much more amenable regulatory environment to build these types of jobs where you can literally support uh, a family on a middle-class income. And when you have that, you, you eliminate some of the poverty rates or mitigate it anyway with this growth group. And even though people are not rich, there's not a whole lot of billionaires that live in Kansas, um, there is, there is a, a, a consolidating middle class. And these middle class voters are increasingly moving towards the Republican Party for economic nationalist purposes, as well as what I would argue is the excesses, the cultural excesses of the American left. So, so your point is that California Latinos are not making that shift to the Republicans because we don't really have a middle class in the way other states do and a middle class set of policies that are, are there to, to be that sort of middle ground for, for Latinos. That, that, is, that is a main reason. The other one is the politicization argument over the last 20 years. You, you still, add both long, still long. Yeah. Yeah. You add both of those together. And again, so so for, you know, the Trump era, people, you know, this was Trump was an introduction to a lot of Latinos outside of California on a, on a you know, kind of crazy sort of racist Republican. Right. In, in California, that's expected because Republicans right. have been acting that way for 25, 30 years. It's not a surprise. Right. The things you're talking about are very long-term developments in the economy, and there's billions and billions in the California economy invested in exactly building exactly the type of economy you just described, um, for better or for worse. How do we change that if you're in, if you're the if you're the governor of California, um, and you rightfully are alarmed by that caste system that you just described? What would you do differently? Well, first, I would disagree with you that they're rightfully alarmed. I don't believe that they are. Well, maybe they're, yeah, right, there you go. Uh, only uh, if they I, listen to this podcast are they rightfully alarmed, but, well, but they're but not look, alarmed now. Yeah. I, think, I think it's the height of irony that Democrats are, you know, people who actually believe in the most government are doing the least to actually solve the problem in a meaningful way. Like the poverty problem in California is not new. It's been bad for about 10 or 15 years. It's, it's gotten to, you know, epic historic proportions now. But the government is not doing anything meaningful to alleviate these concerns. The Democrats believe things like raising the minimum wage is somehow a middle class policy. Newsflash, minimum wage is an anti-poverty solution. It is not a middle class solution. You can't have you can't minimum wage your way out of poverty. Okay, nobody making 20 bucks an hour is middle class in California. Like, that's not a thing. So when you look at the industries that provide for a middle class income, the most immediate way to ameliorate those is to do something to incentivize that industry to create jobs. And these are precisely the industries that California has targeted to, to eliminate, to move and to push out. So we've created this economy. Let's not, let's not, let's not harbor any illusions. California created this economy. We, we have exactly what we wanted. And there's no accountability, as I mentioned, because there is no constituency in these industries that are decreasingly existing or don't exist in the first place to push back and say, hey, wait a second, I want my job. My job is gone. Those jobs don't really exist in the same numbers that they did at the end, for example, of the Cold War in the early mid-1990s. Los Angeles had a very strong manufacturing base, largely based off of defense spending during the Cold War. When all those bases were shut down, Lockheed, Raytheon, Boeing, uh, you know, all of these companies left and all the multiplier effects of all these manufacturing jobs left with them. They were replaced by jobs like Starbucks. They were replaced with service sector jobs. And the only people that could afford it and increasingly can afford it are the very wealthy. So, yeah, it's, it's easy to say these are long term problems. But, Brian, to be honest with you, I've been asked these questions for 25, 30 years where if these policies had been enacted, we wouldn't be dealing with this problem right now. But because we keep saying what's well, a long-term problem, I don't want to deal with it. We actually never get around to doing it. So we start to see multi-generational poverty problems. For example, homelessness, which wasn't really an issue more than five years ago, certainly not to the crisis levels that we see it now. 
is now apparent in basically every town in the entire state of California. And, and, and be mindful, homelessness is overwhelmingly a California-specific problem. One in four homeless people live in California in the entire country. It doesn't mean it's only our problem, but it's overwhelmingly our problem. The poverty problem in California, not just homelessness, but the poverty problem in California is so big that you can't make a dent in the national poverty rates unless you start making a significant dent in the California poverty rate. That's how bad it is. And so th this isn't a function of the weather, like Jerry Brown used to say, well, just poor people like the weather, right? The same way everybody likes the weather. I mean, that's offensive. And, and, and so I look, there's a whole litany. We could talk about education reform. We could talk about um, um, land use reform in terms of actually building and construction, which we are not building enough housing to allow sequel, people. Sequel reform, sequel we've reform, covered it a few course. times. It's crazy, yeah. Yeah, there's sequel reform. There's, there's, there's tax reform. There's, there's regulatory reform. The, the entire system now is built upon this society that we chose to create. And that's why I really want listeners to understand this, is California has a lot of problems. We chose most of them. These were policy decisions. Well, we didn't choose the end of Cold War spending. I mean, like the... No, but, that, no, but, no, right. no, no, but, but that's a great point. So at the end of the Cold War, there was this little thing that was starting up basically in the San Jose area called the Internet. Okay. And the internet actually stuck around a little bit longer than a fad. And it actually started to change the economy a little bit. Places like the East Bay and, and Silicon Valley and San Francisco adjusted through policies to accommodate this industry. Southern California did not. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and because they did not, because government did not adjust for that or accommodate it or build for it, you saw massive displacement of workers and a widening gap between the rich and the poor. And you had far fewer people being educated to work in the new high-tech economy. But that's, a, that's a broader educational problem too. So I'm not saying it's exclusively a problem of government, but what I am saying is we did very little, if anything, to ameliorate the obvious that was happening because some regions of the country, some regions of the state did it. So this wasn't right. a surprise. There were demographic reasons, but the, the, there were demographic reasons affecting every part of the state. There were technological reasons, no question about it. There was a reorientation of the economy. There's no question about it. But what you do in that environment is you make your, your, your government more amenable to industries, not more hostile to industries. And we made them extremely hostile to industries. And as a result, those middle-class jobs are gone. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a really important topic and I, I'd love to dig into this one with you more and maybe like a California historian on kind of like the, the why Silicon Valley happened where it is or sort of wading into this. I'm really interested in that topic. I, I don't think it's obvious that it had to be here. There's some real historic quirks at the origins of the thing, but but you're raising a, a bigger point, which is, re, and I think, I think actually talking about largely regional and local governments in the Bay Area actually did a lot to enhance that. Um, there's probably some statewide policies too, but uh, you know the, the the tech competition initially was actually between Boston and mm -hmm. Silicon Valley and, and like why it didn't wind up on the East Coast and wound up here. I think that's fascinating actually and has has big implications. So I, I maybe we'll stick a pin in that one and come back to that one at, at, at a later date. I, I do think it's um, it tells you something about what what needs to happen in other regions for sure. Um, but while I've got you, because um, I never want to stray too far from politics with, with a true <laughs> political master, mm -hmm. um, what do you think is going to happen in the, in the, the midterms and the congressional races? And I, and I, I don't, I'm not asking you to just be a pundit here. First of all, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen with the Latino vote? But also like, do you think, any of the national, international events going on with Ukraine or with, whether it's what's going on with the Supreme Court, do you think any of that could change the conventional wisdom that the Democrats are going to lose the House? Well, first, again, and I hate to, to be the guy that always says this because I think everybody always says this, but it is still too early, right, to understand what's going to be affecting the race. I mean, three months ago, nobody knew where you know, Ukraine was on the map, and now everybody's kind of an expert on the Donbass region and, you know, military yeah. um, tactical um, 
movements by the what Russians and the, the Ukrainians. What the, what the largest NATO country is with the Russian border and all this stuff. Things right, we never would right, have thought we'd know. Yeah. Right. So things are going to change. That's the only thing that I do know is that what we're talking about now are going to be different, um, if not in, in thematic, than in the um, passion of, of the voters or, or lack thereof going into November. But I'm a big believer, as you know, Brian, in, in data. And history suggests that there's going to be very strong headwinds for the Democrats. They're the party out of power. Now, they did some great things nationally, uh, Democrats did, to, to limit the structural disadvantage of gerrymandering. Um, there was a real, real concern that Republicans would have a massive pickup simply by drawing lines better in red states. That did not seem to happen. Um, I, my guess is there will probably be 15 to 20 truly competitive seats, maybe more on the 15 side than the 20 side. Um, but regardless, um, I, I don't think that um, the at the, look at, at this point in time, it's April. OK, it's early. I don't think that the Democrats are going to do well in the midterms. I think it's going to be a, a, a pretty, pretty bad cycle. Um, I think it's going to be limited only by the fact that they were they were had the foresight and the tactical ability to go in and and limit a very bad redistricting and gerrymander nationally. Um, I think that the foundation, um, the fundamentals for Joe Biden are very weak. Um, his job performance numbers are very anemic and they're anemic, particularly with the Democratic base, young voters specifically. And when, when we're talking about young, in most parts of the country, definitely in California, we're talking non-white. Uh, young people, you know, 18 to 35-year-olds are, 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 are people of color. Um, in California, they're, you know, plurality Hispanic. That's a vote that you need, that the Democrats need desperately to be competitive um, in California, in the you know, two Orange County seats and the Valadeo seat in the Central Valley. And they're going to need that to be competitive nationwide. I, I don't see that rally around the flag effect happening. Uh, now, I am also old enough to remember when foreign policy used to drive politics. It, that was you know, the Reagan era during the Cold War. Foreign policy was always the top concern, even more than domestic issues. Uh, we haven't seen the type of concern that I'm seeing in polling with the gas and groceries issues. Inflation is a very real problem. And there's not an immediate solution for a president to come out and say, this is what we're going to do to fix it. Um, crime is, is a sleeper issue, um, which, you know, it's very directly correlate to homelessness. If you look at the crosstabs and the way you examine that question, yeah. Democrats and Republicans will both say homelessness is a top issue, but they're saying very different things when they bring it up. And so you got to be very smart in the way you're approaching that issue. I think Water. By the time we get to June and November, water in California is going to be a very, very significant issue. This drought is very real. It's going to be very problematic, and we're going to be feeling it with wildfire season. So um, I, I, I'm not optimistic right now for the Democrats' chances. I think the Republicans will do quite well. Um, but like I said, it's, it's April, and we're just going to have to see what happens. I, I don't think we're going to see a, a continuation of very significant Hispanic voter turnout. I think it will not match non-white turnout i think it will be lower than non-white uh, than white non-hispanics excuse me but i also think it will be higher than it has historically been with its these historically low lows that, that latinos have certain have defined their civic participation on all right we're gonna have to have you back again because there's a lot there and i'd love to get more into i i, I definitely want to talk to you sometime yeah. about why Biden's not getting a national security balance yeah. um given how united the world is on these things and i get that there's an inflation drag but but i you're you i think you and i were in school in dc at the same time and, and we can certainly remember like yes when there's international events um you know particularly one against a country that I hope pretty much most Americans agree is the bad guys at this point. You'd think you'd, you'd see some more unity and we're not seeing that. Uh, but last question, since you just brought it up, yeah. um, what what do you think turnout's going to be in this election? Because mail-in voting is such a wild card, right? And we were like, I think we were all um, maybe surprised a little, some of us more than others about how high turnout was in the Newsom recall. What, what do you have it at in, in, in this El eligible turnout? Let me just say this. I think it's going to be uh, higher than the last two midterms that we have seen, but I don't think it's going to get, of course, anywhere near presidential levels, certainly not 2020 levels. 
Um, well, those, so, the last two ones are like 30%, right? So, so you're, but do you think it four, touches 14, anywhere near the Newsom recall? Oh, uh, no. I, I, no, it, not that high. I, it, I mean, uh, <clears throat> Boy, that, I mean, look, you're asking me to get, you know, um, it, it, it could. Yes, it okay. could. I've got you in the 50 to I'm putting you between 50 and 60 percent. Is that fair? Yeah, probably around 50, 54, 55. Right yeah, mid 50s. Yeah. But, but what I will say is this, whether it's 50 or 70, I don't think that it's going to matter, which is a strange thing to say. But I really don't. And the reason it's not it's not going to matter for statewide outcomes. Okay. It may affect it may affect, you know, the Valadeo race most specifically. That one has the largest turnout variation. I don't think that turnout is going to be what unseats young Kim or Michelle Steele. I think what will happen in those two seats in Orange County will be a function of everything that we have seen in the 2016, 2018, and 2020 cycle. And we could do a whole episode on this, but it's very important. And that, that is the determining factor in each one of those congressional races will be college-educated Republicans. And what people have not recognized about those two Orange County seats is that those are also the two Republican-held seats in the United States Congress that have the highest number of college graduates. That's very important. And it's why you saw swings from 16 to 18 to 20 and the way they vote is going to determine the election. It's not going to be Latino turnout. It's not going to be low propensity Democratic turnout. It's going to be whether or not suburban college educated women view the party as different than Donald Trump or not, because they're already showing in places like Virginia and New Jersey. They're willing to, you know, they voted for Biden in 2020 because Donald Trump was a freaking nut job. But they're going to come back to vote for Youngkin because they are they are Republicans. They're not they're not, you know newly enlightened progressives the way a lot of Democrats want to think they are. They just couldn't handle the crazy with Donald Trump. And if they believe that it's more of the party of a Glenn Youngkin than a Donald Trump, then they're, they're, they're going to vote Republican. They're inclined to vote Republican. I, I said last question, but, but there's, there's, I can't, I can't resist. Short okay. So, so, so I, so you're, you're, you're saying, and I, and I certainly agree with this, that we're going to have, you know, a pretty significant bump from historic turnout levels. If we're like 30% in 2018 midterms, we might be like 55, you know, something for something like this. Isn't by definition that mean a more moderate electorates voting in that? Because, because the extreme left already votes in primaries, right? Um, if you're a real activist, you're largely, not always, but largely already voting. So these new voters, largely from mail-in voting, we think, Aren't they by definition more moderate than who has showed up in these off-year primaries before? I don't know what moderate means anymore. But what uh, I do sw- yeah, fair enough. But swingable, gettable, maybe you know, competitive. Maybe I do know that Democrats are going to vote for the Democrat 85, 90% of the time, and Republicans are going to vote for the Republican 85, 90% of the time. That right. leaves you 10%. Um, but that's no different than what's going to show up in a low turn election. You're going to have the same constitution. So you may have more raw votes, but the percentages will be the same. That's why I'm saying I don't see a, a difference in terms of the yeah. election is what we what we normally have seen in these low turnout elections in California, specifically here, is when Latino vote drops to these historically low numbers. That's a 75% Democratic vote. That's what's created these massive gyrations. If that starts to go up, it naturally benefits the 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 Democrat, right? If seventy five percent of your base is showing up, it naturally supports the Democrat, and and that's why I said in Valadeo, see, it will make a difference if you get it up yeah. high enough. But you got to get pretty damn high. Valadeo's seat in the Central Valley, there, you got Latino turnout, which is, I mean, it's it's terrible, uh, at least at least uh, compared to the to, to the citizen voting age eligible pool of Latinos. It's probably one of the worst in the state. Okay. Don't, don't, you know, quote me on that specifically, but it's, it's really bad. You go into, you go into young Kim and Michelle Steele's seats. You're talking maybe 15, 18% of those communities are Hispanic. And those Latinos that live there are college educated, you know, oftentimes Republican voters. I mean, it's expensive to live in that part of Orange County, right? Yeah. So even if you're getting a higher turnout, you're not getting the same type of turnout that you're getting in non-college educated areas. And so what I'm, pr- I'm 
pushing your listeners to do at least the super geeky nerdy ones who are still listening to this podcast and still listening to Mike Madrid at this point in time. That's, that's this 55, 55% of our audience. 55% of our audience. Yeah. yeah. Don't, what you really need to do is go to your data vendor of choice and just start looking at college educated voters and the turnout ratio there. That's right. what's going to tell you whether or not young Kim and Michelle Steele hold onto those seats in Congress. That's what's going to tell you. It's not the Latino vote. It's not low propensity Democrats. It's not anything else. It's whether or not college educated Republican voters vote GOP or the way that they have this uh, fraction of them vote for the Democrats the way they did in 2020 when we were doing the Lincoln Project work or in 2018 in the midterms when they were basically like Donald Trump is crazy. We can't allow the Republicans to have the speakership. Let's give the gavel to Nancy Pelosi. They are moving that movement between those that 10, 15 percent of college educated Republican voters will determine who is going to control the House. My strong suspicion is at this point they're going to be voting for the Republican Party. So I I used to think that all the Republicans I know were lying when they said they didn't vote for Trump because the numbers suggest that 85, 90 percent of Republicans voted for Trump. But but you've taught me something today. What you're telling me is, no, I only know college educated Republicans by and large. And they're probably telling the truth uh, if, if, if we believe that. So that's just the too, too small of a social circle that I hang out with. Well, let me just say it's it's not a wide percentage. I mean, history right. is made on the margins. If you get 10% of Republicans to bolt, right. the Democrats will win. That's a lot. Yeah. Right. It, but it's, 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 yeah, it's a lot. It's 10%, but it's even less. In some of those districts, if you get five, 6% of them to bolt, that's, that's enough. The question is, right. can you, can you get it? And can Democrats get a turnout in a time when they're feeling kind of anemic, especially um, young voters about Joe Biden? All right. It's a great thought to leave us with. History is made on the margins from, from the man who helped, helped make history on the margins with the Lincoln Project and a lot of other races. So, uh, Mike, thanks. Uh, love talking to you and, and would love to have you back in time to continue these topics. Love talking with you, Brian. Thanks for having me. We invite you to share story ideas, comments, and questions. Find us at NeptuneOps.com or on Twitter at, at NationStateOfP1. Again, that's at Nation State of P and then the number one. Follow us and subscribe to listen to all of our episodes as we continue to explore the inside stories driving California policy. This is the Nation State of Play podcast, exploring the inside political stories driving public policy in California. Powered by Neptune Ops and presented by IVC Media. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and thank you for listening.